Next morning, there were two thousand armed men scattered throughout the palm trees at Al-Fayum. Before the sun had reached its high point, five hundred tribesmen appeared on the horizon. The mounted troops entered the oasis from the north. It appeared to be a peaceful expedition, but they all carried arms hidden in their robes. When they reached the white tent at the centre of Al-Fayum, they withdrew their scimitars and rifles, and they attacked an empty tent. The men of the oasis surrounded the horsemen from the desert, and within half an hour all but one of the intruders were dead. The children had been kept at the other side of a grove of palm trees and saw nothing of what had happened. The women had remained in their tents, praying for the safekeeping of their husbands and saw nothing of the battle either. Were it not for the bodies there on the ground, it would have appeared to be a normal day at the oasis. The only tribesman spared was the commander of the battalion. That afternoon he was brought before the tribal chieftains who asked him why he had violated the tradition. The commander said that his men had been starving and thirsty, exhausted from many days of battle, and had decided to take the oasis so as to be able to return to the war. The tribal chieftain said that he felt sorry for the tribesmen, but that the tradition was sacred. He condemned the commander to death without honour. Rather than being killed by a blade or a bullet, he was hanged from a dead palm tree, where his body twisted in the desert wind. The tribal chieftain called for the boy, and presented him with fifty pieces of gold. He repeated his story about Joseph of Egypt, and asked the boy to become the counsellor of the oasis. When the sun had set, and the first stars made their appearance, the boy started to walk to the south. He eventually sighted a single tent, and a group of Arabs passing by told the boy that it was a place inhabited by genies. But the boy sat down and waited. Not until the moon was high did the alchemist ride into view. He carried two dead hawks over his shoulder. I'm here, the boy said. You shouldn't be here, the alchemist answered. Or is it your personal legend that brings you here? With the wars between the tribes, it's impossible to cross the desert, so I've come here. The alchemist dismounted from his horse and signalled that the boy should enter the tent with him. It was a tent like many at the oasis. The boy looked around for the ovens and other apparatus used in alchemy, but saw none. There were only some books in a pile, a small cooking stove, and the carpets, covered with mysterious designs. Sit down. We'll have something to drink and eat these hawks, said the alchemist. The boy suspected that they were the same hawks he had seen on the day before, but he said nothing. The alchemist lighted the fire, and soon a delicious aroma filled the tent. It was better than the scent of hookers. Why did you want to see me? the boy asked. Because of the omens, the alchemist answered. The wind told me you would be coming, and that you would need help. It's not I the wind spoke about. It's the other foreigner, the Englishman. He's the one that's looking for you. He has other things to do first, but he's on the right track. He has begun to try to understand the desert. And what about me? When a person really desires something, all the universe conspires to help that person to realize his dream, said the alchemist, echoing the words of the old king. 
The boy understood. Another person was there to help him towards his personal legend. So, I, are you going to instruct me? No, you already know all you need to know. I am only going to point you in the direction of your treasure. But there's a tribal war, the boy reiterated. I know what's happening in the desert. I've already found my treasure. I have a camel, I have my money from the crystal shop, and I have fifty gold pieces. In my own country, I'd be a rich man. But none of that is from the pyramids, said the alchemist. I also have Fatima. She's a treasure greater than anything else I've won. She wasn't found at the pyramids either. They ate in silence. The alchemist opened a bottle and poured a red liquid into the boy's cup. It was the most delicious wine he had ever tasted. Isn't wine prohibited here? the boy asked. It's not what enters men's mouths that's evil, said the alchemist. It's what comes out of their mouths that is. The alchemist was a bit daunting, but as the boy drank the wine, he relaxed. After they finished eating, they sat outside the tent, under a moon so brilliant that it made the stars pale. Drink and enjoy yourself, said the alchemist, noticing that the boy was feeling happier. Rest well tonight, as if you were a warrior preparing for combat. Remember that wherever your heart is, there you will find your treasure. You've got to find the treasure so that everything you have learned along the way can make sense. Tomorrow, sell your camel and buy a horse. Camels are treacherous. They walk thousands of paces and never seem to tire. Then suddenly they kneel and die. But horses tire bit by bit. You always know how much you can ask of them, and when it is that they are about to die. The following night, the boy appeared at the alchemist's tent with a horse. The alchemist was ready, and he mounted his own steed and placed the falcon on his left shoulder. He said to the boy, Show me where there is life out in the desert. Only those who can see such signs of life are able to find treasure. They began to ride out over the sands, with the moon lighting their way. I don't know if I'll be able to find life in the desert, the boy thought. I don't know the desert that well yet. He wanted to say so to the alchemist, but he was afraid of the man. They reached the rocky place where the boy had seen the hawks in the sky, but now there was only silence and the wind. I don't know how to find life in the desert, the boy said. I know that there's life here, but I don't know where to look. Life attracts life, the alchemist answered. And then the boy understood. He loosened the reins on his horse, who galloped forward over the rocks and sand. The alchemist followed as the boy's horse ran for almost half an hour. They could no longer see the palms of the oasis, only the gigantic moon above them and its silver reflections from the stones of the desert. Suddenly, for no apparent reason, the boy's horse began to slow. There's life here, the boy said to the alchemist. I don't know the language of the desert, but my horse knows the language of life. They dismounted, and the alchemist said nothing. Advancing slowly, they searched among the stones. The alchemist stopped abruptly and bent to the ground. There was a hole there among the stones. The alchemist put his hand into the hole, and then his entire arm up to his shoulder. Something was moving there, and the alchemist's eyes, the boy could only see his eyes, squinted with his effort.
His arm seemed to be battling with whatever was in the hole. Then, with a motion that startled the boy, he withdrew his arm and leapt to his feet. In his hand, he grasped a snake by the tail. The boy leapt as well, but away from the alchemist. The snake fought frantically, making hissing sounds that shattered the silence of the desert. It was a cobra whose venom could kill a person in minutes. Watch out for his venom, the boy said. But even though the alchemist had put his hand in the hole and had surely already been bitten, his expression was calm. The alchemist is two hundred years old, the Englishman had told him. He must know how to deal with snakes in the desert. The boy watched as his companion went to his horse and withdrew a scimitar. With its blade, he drew a circle in the sand, and then he placed the snake within it. The serpent relaxed immediately. Not to worry, said the alchemist. You won't leave the circle. You found life in the desert. The omen that I needed. Why was that so important? Because the pyramids are surrounded by deserts. The boy didn't want to talk about the pyramids. His heart was heavy, and he had been melancholy since the previous night. To continue his search for the treasure meant that he had to abandon Fatima. I'm going to guide you across the desert, the alchemist said. I want to stay at the oasis, the boy answered. I've found Fatima, and as far as I'm concerned, she's worth more than treasure. Fatima is a woman of the desert, said the alchemist. She knows that men have to go away in order to return, and she already has her treasure. It's you. Now she expects that you will find what it is you're looking for. Well, what if I decide to stay? Let me tell you what will happen. You'll be the counsellor of the oasis. You have enough gold to buy many sheep and many camels. You'll marry Fatima. And you'll both be happy for a year. You'll learn to love the desert, and you'll get to know every one of the 50,000 palms. You'll watch them as they grow, demonstrating how the world is always changing. And you'll get better and better at understanding omens, because the desert is the best teacher there is. Sometime during the second year, you'll remember about the treasure. The omens will begin insistently to speak of it, and you'll try to ignore them. You'll use your knowledge for the welfare of the oasis and its inhabitants. The tribal chieftains will appreciate what you do, and your camels will bring you wealth and power. During the third year, the omens will continue to speak of your treasure and your personal legend. You'll walk around night after night at the oasis, and Fatima will be unhappy because she'll feel it was she who interrupted your quest. But you will love her, and she'll return your love. You'll remember that she never asked you to stay, because a woman of the desert knows that she must await her man. So you won't blame her. But many times you'll walk the sands of the desert thinking that maybe you could have left, that you could have trusted more in your love for Fatima. "'because what kept you at the oasis was your own fear "'that you might never come back. "'At that point, the omens will tell you "'that your treasure is buried forever. "'Then, sometime during the fourth year, "'the omens will abandon you "'because you stopped listening to them. "'The tribal chieftains will see that, "'and you'll be dismissed from your position as counsellor. 
but by then you'll be a rich merchant, with many camels and a great deal of merchandise. You'll spend the rest of your days knowing that you didn't pursue your personal legend, and that now it's too late. You must understand that love never keeps a man from pursuing his personal legend. If he abandons that pursuit, it's because it wasn't true love, the love that speaks the language of the world. The alchemist raised the circle in the sand, and the snake slithered away among the rocks. The boy remembered the crystal merchant who had always wanted to go to Mecca, and the Englishman in search of the alchemist. He thought of the woman who had trusted in the desert, and he looked out over the desert that had brought him to the woman he loved. They mounted their horses, and this time it was the boy who followed the alchemist back to the oasis. The wind brought the sounds of the oasis to them, and the boy tried to hear Fatima's voice. But that night, as he had watched the cobra within the circle, the strange horseman with the falcon on his shoulder had spoken of love and treasure, of the women of the desert, and of his personal legend. I'm going with you, the boy said, and he immediately felt peace in his heart. We'll leave tomorrow before sunrise, was the alchemist's only response. The boy spent a sleepless night. Two hours before dawn, he awoke one of the boys who slept in his tent and asked him to show him where Fatima lived. They went to her tent, and the boy gave his friend enough gold to buy a sheep. Then he asked his friend to go into the tent where Fatima was sleeping and to awaken her and tell her that he was waiting outside. The young Arab did as he was asked and was given enough gold to buy yet another sheep. Now leave us alone, said the boy to the young Arab. The Arab returned to his tent to sleep, proud to have helped the counsellor of the oasis, and happy at having enough money to buy himself some sheep. Fatima appeared at the entrance to the tent. The two walked out among the palms. The boy knew it was a violation of the tradition, but that didn't matter to him now. I'm going away, he said, and I want you to know that I'm coming back. I love you because don't say anything, Fatima interrupted. One is loved because one is loved. No reason is needed for loving. But the boy continued, I had a dream and I met with a king. I sold crystal and crossed the desert. And because the tribes declared war, I went to the well seeking the alchemist. So I love you because the entire universe conspired to help me find you. The two embraced. It was the first time either had touched the other. I'll be back, the boy said. Before this, I always looked to the desert with longing, said Fatima. Now it will be with hope. My father went away one day, but he returned to my mother, and he has always come back since then. They said nothing else. They walked a bit further among the palms, and then the boy left her at the entrance to her tent. I'll return, just as your father came back to your mother, he said. He saw that Fatima's eyes were filled with tears. You're crying. I'm a woman of the desert, she said, averting her face. But above all, I'm a woman. Fatima went back to her tent.
and when daylight came, she went out to do the chores she had done for years. But everything had changed. The boy was no longer at the oasis, and the oasis would never again have the same meaning it had had only yesterday. It would no longer be a place with 50,000 palm trees and 300 wells where the pilgrims arrived, relieved at the end of their long journeys. From that day on, the oasis would be an empty place for her. From that day on, it was the desert that would be important. She would look to it every day and would try to guess which star the boy was following in search of his treasure. She would have to send her kisses on the wind, hoping that the wind would touch the boy's face and would tell him that she was alive, that she was waiting for him, a woman awaiting a courageous man in search of his treasure. From that day on, the desert would represent only one thing to her, the hope for his return. Don't think about what you've left behind, the alchemist said to the boy as they began to ride across the sands of the desert. Everything is written in the soul of the world, and there it will stay forever. Men dream more about coming home than about leaving, the boy said. He was already reaccustomed to the desert silence. If what one finds is made of pure matter, it will never spoil, and one can always come back. If what you had found was only a moment of light, like the explosion of a star, you would find nothing on your return. The man was speaking the language of alchemy, but the boy knew he was referring to Fatima. It was difficult not to think about what he had left behind. The desert, with its endless monotony, put him to dreaming. The boy could still see the palm trees, the wells, and the face of the woman he loved. He could see the Englishman at his experiments and the camel driver, who was a teacher without realising it. Maybe the alchemist has never been in love, the boy thought. The alchemist rode in front with the falcon on his shoulder. The bird knew the language of the desert well, and whenever they stopped he flew off in search of game. On the first day he returned with a rabbit, and on the second with two birds. At night they spread their sleeping gear and kept their fires hidden. The desert nights were cold and were becoming darker and darker as the phases of the moon passed. They went on for a week, speaking only of the precautions they needed to follow in order to avoid the battles between the tribes. The war continued, and at times the wind carried the sweet, sickly smell of blood. Battles had been fought nearby, and the wind reminded the boy that there was the language of omens always ready to show him what his eyes had failed to observe. On the seventh day, the alchemist decided to make camp earlier than usual. The falcon flew off to find game, and the alchemist offered his water container to the boy. You are almost at the end of your journey, said the alchemist. I congratulate you for having pursued your personal legend. And you've told me nothing along the way, said the boy. I thought you were going to teach me some of the things you know. A while ago, I rode through the desert with a man who had books on alchemy, but I wasn't able to learn anything from them. There is only one way to learn, the alchemist answered. It's through action. Everything you need to know, you have learned through your journey. You need to learn only one thing more. The boy wanted to know what that was, but the alchemist was searching the horizon, looking for the falcon. Why 
Are you called the alchemist? Because that's what I am. And what went wrong when other alchemists tried to make gold and were unable to do so? They were looking only for gold, his companion answered. They were seeking the treasure of their personal legend without wanting actually to live out the personal legend. What is it that I still need to know? the boy asked. But the alchemist continued to look to the horizon, and finally the falcon returned with their meal. They dug a hole and lit their fire in it so that the light of the flames would not be seen. I'm an alchemist simply because I'm an alchemist, he said as he prepared the meal. I learned the science from my grandfather, who learned it from his father, and so on, back to the creation of the world. In those times, the master work could be written simply on an emerald. But men began to reject simple things, and to write tracts, interpretations, and philosophical studies. They also began to feel that they knew a better way than others had. Yet the emerald tablet is still alive today. What was written on the emerald tablet, the boy wanted to know. The alchemist began to draw in the sand, and completed his drawing in less than five minutes. As he drew, the boy thought of the old king and the plaza where they had met that day. It seemed as if it had taken place years and years ago. This is what was written on the emerald tablet, said the alchemist when he had finished. The boy tried to read what was written in the sand. It's a code, said the boy, a bit disappointed. It looks like what I saw in the Englishman's books. No, the alchemist answered. It's like the flight of those two hawks. It can't be understood by reason alone. The emerald tablet is a direct passage to the soul of the world. The wise men understood that this natural world is only an image and a copy of paradise. The existence of this world is simply a guarantee that there exists a world that is perfect. God created the world so that through its visible objects men could understand his spiritual teachings and the marvels of his wisdom. That's what I mean by action. Should I understand the emerald tablet, the boy asked? Perhaps. If you were in a laboratory of alchemy, this would be the right time to study the best way to understand the emerald tablet. But you are in the desert, so immerse yourself in it. The desert will give you an understanding of the world. In fact, anything on the face of the earth will do that. You don't even have to understand the desert. All you have to do is contemplate a simple grain of sand, and you will see in it all the marvels of creation. How do I immerse myself in the desert? Listen to your heart. It knows all things because it came from the soul of the world, and it will one day return there. They crossed the desert for another two days in silence. The alchemist had become much more cautious because they were approaching the area where the most violent battles were being waged. As they moved along, the boy tried to listen to his heart. It was not easy to do. In earlier times, his heart had always been ready to tell its story, but lately that wasn't true. There had been times when his heart spent hours telling of its sadness, 
and at other times it became so emotional over the desert sunrise that the boy had to hide his tears. His heart beat fastest when it spoke to the boy of treasure, and more slowly when the boy stared entranced at the endless horizons of the desert. But his heart was never quiet, even when the boy and the alchemist had fallen into silence. Why do we have to listen to our hearts? the boy asked when they had made camp that day. Because wherever your heart is, that is where you'll find your treasure. But my heart is agitated, the boy said. It has its dreams, it gets emotional, and it's become passionate over a woman of the desert. It asks things of me, and it keeps me from sleeping many nights when I'm thinking about her. Well, that's good. Your heart is alive. Keep listening to what it has to say. During the next three days, the two travellers passed by a number of armed tribesmen and saw others on the horizon. The boy's heart began to speak of fear. It told him stories it had heard from the soul of the world, stories of men who sought to find their treasure and never succeeded. Sometimes it frightened the boy with the idea that he might not find his treasure, or that he might die there in the desert. At other times, it told the boy that it was satisfied. It had found love and riches. My heart is a traitor, the boy said to the alchemist when they had paused to rest their horses. It doesn't want me to go on. Well, that makes sense, the alchemist answered. Naturally, it's afraid that in pursuing your dream you might lose everything you've won. Well, then, why should I listen to my heart? Because you will never again be able to keep it quiet. Even if you pretend not to have heard what it tells you, it will always be there inside you, repeating to you what you're thinking about life and about the world. You mean I should listen even if it's treasonous? Treason is a blow that comes unexpectedly. If you know your heart well, it will never be able to do that to you, because you'll know its dreams and wishes, and will know how to deal with them. You will never be able to escape from your heart, so it's better to listen to what it has to say. That way, you'll never have to fear an unanticipated blow. The boy continued to listen to his heart as they crossed the desert. He came to understand its dodges and tricks, and to accept it as it was. He lost his fear, and forgot about his need to go back to the oasis, because one afternoon his heart told him that it was happy. Even though I complain sometimes, it said, it's because I'm the heart of a person, and people's hearts are that way. People are afraid to pursue their most important dreams, because they feel they don't deserve them, or that they'll be unable to achieve them. We, their hearts, become fearful just thinking of loved ones who go away forever, or of moments that could have been good but weren't, or of treasures that might have been found but were forever hidden in the sands. Because when these things happen, we suffer terribly. My heart's afraid it'll have to suffer, the boy told the alchemist one night as they looked up at the moonless sky. Tell your heart that the fear of suffering is worse than the suffering itself and that no heart has ever suffered when it goes in search of its dreams, because every second of the search is a second's encounter with God and with eternity. Every second of the search is an encounter with God, the boy told his heart. When I have been truly searching for my treasure, every day has been luminous, because I've known that every hour was a part of the dream that I would find it. 
when I have been truly searching for my treasure, I've discovered things along the way that I never would have seen had I not had the courage to try things that seemed impossible for a shepherd to achieve. So his heart was quiet for an entire afternoon. That night, the boy slept deeply, and when he awoke, his heart began to tell him things that came from the soul of the world. It said that all people who are happy have God within them, and that happiness could be found in a grain of sand from the desert, as the alchemist had said, because a grain of sand is a moment of creation, and the universe has taken millions of years to create it. Everyone on earth has a treasure that awaits him, his heart said. We, people's hearts, seldom say much about those treasures because people no longer want to go in search of them. We speak of them only to children. Later, we simply let life proceed in its own direction, towards its own fate. But, unfortunately, very few follow the path laid out for them, the path to their personal legends and to happiness. Most people see the world as a threatening place, and because they do, the world turns out indeed to be a threatening place. So we, their hearts, speak more and more softly. We never stop speaking out, but we begin to hope that our words won't be heard. We don't want people to suffer because they don't follow their hearts. Why don't people's hearts tell them to continue to follow their dreams? The boy asked the alchemist. Because that's what makes a heart suffer most, and hearts don't like to suffer. From then on, the boy understood his heart. He asked it please never to stop speaking to him. He asked that when he wandered far from his dreams, his heart press him and sound the alarm. The boy swore that every time he heard the alarm, he would heed its message. That night, he told all of this to the alchemist, and the alchemist understood that the boy's heart had returned to the soul of the world. So what should I do now? the boy asked. Continue in the direction of the pyramids, said the alchemist, and continue to pay heed to the omens. Your heart is still capable of showing you where the treasure is. Is that the one thing I still needed to know? No, the alchemist answered. What you still need to know is this. Before a dream is realized, the soul of the world tests everything that was learned along the way. It does this not because it is evil, but so that we can, in addition to realizing our dreams, master the lessons we've learned as we've moved toward that dream. That's the point at which most people give up. It's the point at which, as we say in the language of the desert, one dies of thirst just when the palm trees have appeared on the horizon. Every search begins with beginner's luck, and every search ends with the victors being severely tested. The boy remembered an old proverb from his country. It said that the darkest hour of the night came just before the dawn. On the following day, the first clear sign of danger appeared. Three armed tribesmen approached and asked what the boy and the alchemist were doing there. I'm hunting with my falcon the alchemist answered. We're going to have to search you to see whether you are armed, one of the tribesmen said. The alchemist dismounted slowly, and the boy did the same. Why are you carrying money? asked the tribesman when he had searched the boy's bag. 
I, I need to get to the pyramids, he said. The tribesman who was searching the alchemist's belongings found a small crystal flask filled with a liquid and a yellow glass egg that was slightly larger than a chicken's egg. What are these things? he asked. That's the philosopher's stone and the elixir of life. It's the masterwork of the alchemists. Whoever swallows that elixir will never be sick again, and a fragment from that stone turns any metal into gold. The Arabs laughed at him, and the alchemists laughed along. They thought his answer was amusing, and they allowed the boy and the alchemist to proceed with all of their belongings. Are you crazy? the boy asked the alchemist when they'd moved on. What did you do that for? To show you one of life's simple lessons, the alchemist answered. When you possess great treasures within you, and try to tell others of them, seldom are you believed. They continued across the desert. With every day that passed, the boy's heart became more and more silent. It no longer wanted to know about things of the past or future. It was content simply to contemplate the desert and to drink with the boy from the soul of the world. And the boy and his heart had become friends. And neither was capable now of betraying the other. When his heart spoke to him, it was to provide a stimulus to the boy and to give him strength because the days of silence there in the desert were wearisome. His heart told the boy what his strongest qualities were, his courage in having given up his sheep and in trying to live out his personal legend, and his enthusiasm during the time he had worked at the crystal shop. And his heart told him something else that the boy had never noticed. It told the boy of dangers that had threatened him, but that he had never perceived. His heart said that one time... It had hidden the rifle the boy had taken from his father because of the possibility that the boy might wound himself. And it reminded the boy of the day when he had been ill and vomiting out in the fields, after which he had fallen into a deep sleep. There had been two thieves further ahead who were planning to steal the boy's sheep and murder him. But since the boy hadn't passed by, they had decided to move on, thinking that he had changed his route. Does a man's heart always help him? The boy asked the alchemist. Mostly just the hearts of those who are trying to realize their personal legends. But they do help children, drunkards, and the elderly, too. Does that mean I'll never run into danger? It means only that the heart does what it can, the alchemist said. One afternoon they passed by the encampment of one of the tribes. At each corner of the camp were Arabs garbed in beautiful white robes with arms at the ready. The men were smoking their hookers and trading stories from the battlefield. No one paid any attention to the two travellers. There's no danger, the boy said when they had moved on past the encampment. The alchemist sounded angry. Trust in your heart, but never forget that you're in the desert. When men are at war with one another, the soul of the world can hear the screams of battle. No one fails to suffer the consequences of everything under the sun. All things are one, the boy thought. And then, as if the desert wanted to demonstrate that the alchemist was right, two horsemen appeared from behind the travellers. You can't go any further, one of them said. You're in the area where the tribes are at war. I'm not going very far, the alchemist answered, looking straight into the eyes of the horsemen. 
They were silent for a moment, and then agreed that the boy and the alchemist could move along. The boy watched the exchange with fascination. You dominated those horsemen with the way you looked at them, he said. Your eyes show the strength of your soul, answered the alchemist. That's true, the boy thought. He'd noticed that, in the midst of the multitude of armed men back at the encampment, there had been one who stared fixedly at the two. He'd been so far away that his face wasn't even visible, but the boy was certain that he had been looking at them. Finally, when they had crossed the mountain range that extended along the entire horizon, the alchemist said that they were only two days from the pyramids. If we're going to go our separate ways soon, the boy said, then teach me about alchemy. You already know about alchemy. It is about penetrating to the soul of the world and discovering the treasure that has been reserved for you. No, that, that's not what I mean. I'm talking about transforming lead into gold. The alchemist fell as silent as the desert, and answered the boy only after they had stopped to eat. Everything in the universe evolved, he said. And, for wise men, gold is the metal that evolved the furthest. Don't ask me why, I don't know why. I just know that the tradition is always right. Men have never understood the words of the wise. So gold, instead of being seen as a symbol of evolution, became the basis for conflict. There are many languages spoken by things, the boy said. There was a time when, for me, a camel's whinnying was nothing more than whinnying. Then it became a signal of danger. And finally, it became just a whinny again. But then he stopped. The alchemist probably already knew all that. I have known true alchemists, the alchemist continued. They locked themselves in their laboratories and tried to evolve as gold had. And they found the Philosopher's Stone because they understood that when something evolves, everything around that thing evolves as well. Others stumbled upon the stone by accident. They already had the gift and their souls were readier for such things than the souls of others. But they don't count. They're quite rare. And then there were the others who were interested only in gold. They never found the secret. They forgot that lead, copper, and iron have their own personal legends to fulfill, and anyone who interferes with the personal legend of another thing never will discover his own. The alchemist's words echoed out like a curse. He reached over and picked up a shell from the ground. This desert was once a sea, he said. I noticed that, the boy answered. The alchemist told the boy to place the shell over his ear. He had done that many times when he was a child and had heard the sound of the sea. The sea has lived on in this shell because that's its personal legend. It will never cease doing so until the desert is once again covered by water. They mounted their horses and rode out in the direction of the pyramids of Egypt. The sun was setting when the boy's heart sounded a danger signal. They were surrounded by gigantic dunes, and the boy looked at the alchemist to see whether he had sensed anything but he appeared to be unaware of any danger. 
Five minutes later, the boy saw two horsemen waiting ahead of them. Before he could say anything to the alchemist, the two horsemen had become ten, and then a hundred. And then they were everywhere in the dunes. They were tribesmen dressed in blue, with black rings surrounding their turbans. Their faces were hidden behind blue veils, with only their eyes showing. Even from a distance, their eyes conveyed the strength of their souls, and their eyes spoke of death. The two were taken to a nearby military camp. A soldier shoved the boy and the alchemist into a tent where the chief was holding a meeting with his staff. These are the spies, said one of the men. We're just travellers, the alchemist answered. You were seen at the enemy camp three days ago, and you were talking with one of the troops there. Oh, I'm just a man who wanders the desert and knows the stars, said the alchemist. I have no information about troops or about the movement of the tribes. I was simply acting as a guide for my friend here. Who is your friend? the chief asked. An alchemist, said the alchemist. He understands the forces of nature, and he wants to show you his extraordinary powers. The boy listened quietly and fearfully. What's a foreigner doing here? asked another of the men. He has brought money to give to your tribe, said the alchemist before the boy could say a word. And seizing the boy's bag, the alchemist gave the gold coins to the chief. The Arab accepted them without a word. There was enough there to buy a lot of weapons. What is an alchemist? he asked finally. It's a man who understands nature and the world. If he wanted to, he could destroy this camp just with the force of the wind. The men laughed. They were used to the ravages of war and knew that the wind could not deliver them a fatal blow. Yet each felt his heart beat a bit faster. They were men of the desert and they were fearful of sorcerers. I want to see him do it, said the chief. He needs three days, answered the alchemist. He's going to transform himself into the wind, just to demonstrate his powers. If he can't do it, we humbly offer you our lives for the honour of your tribe. You can't offer me something that's already mine, the chief said arrogantly. But he granted the travellers three days. The boy was shaking with fear, but the alchemist helped him out of the tent. Don't let them see you're afraid, the alchemist said. They are brave men, and they despise cowards. But the boy couldn't even speak. He was able to do so only after they had walked through the centre of the camp. There was no need to imprison them. The Arabs simply confiscated their horses. So once again, the world had demonstrated its many languages. The desert only moments ago had been endless and free, and now it was an impenetrable wall. You gave them everything I had, the boy said. Everything I've saved in my entire life. Well, what good would it be to you if you had to die, the alchemist answered. Your money saved us for three days. It's not often that money saves a person's life. But the boy was too frightened to listen to words of wisdom. He had no idea how he was going to transform himself into the wind. He wasn't an alchemist. The alchemist asked one of the soldiers for some tea 
and poured some on the boy's wrists. A wave of relief washed over him, and the alchemist muttered some words that the boy didn't understand. Don't give in to your fears, said the alchemist in a strangely gentle voice. If you do, you won't be able to talk to your heart. But I have no idea how to turn myself into the wind. If a person is living out his personal legend, he knows everything he needs to know. There is only one thing that makes a dream impossible to achieve, the fear of failure. I'm not afraid of failing, it's just I don't know how to turn myself into the wind. Well, you'll have to learn. Your life depends on it. But what if I can't? Then you'll die in the midst of trying to realise your personal legend. Well, that's a lot better than dying like millions of other people who never even knew what their personal legends were. But don't worry, the alchemist continued. Usually the threat of death makes people a lot more aware of their lives. The first day passed. There was a major battle nearby, and a number of wounded were brought back to the camp. The dead soldiers were replaced by others, and life went on. Death doesn't change anything, the boy thought. You could have died later on, a soldier said to the body of one of his companions. You could have died after peace had been declared. But in any case, you were going to die. At the end of the day, the boy went looking for the alchemist, who had taken his falcon out into the desert. I still have no idea how to turn myself into the wind, the boy repeated. Remember what I told you. The world is only the visible aspect of God, and that what alchemy does is to bring spiritual perfection into contact with the material plane. What are you doing? Feeding my falcon. If I'm not able to turn myself into the wind, we're going to die, the boy said. Why feed your falcon? You're the one who may die, the alchemist said. I already know how to turn myself into the wind. On the second day, the boy climbed to the top of a cliff near the camp. The sentinels allowed him to go. They had already heard about the sorcerer who could turn himself into the wind, and they didn't want to go near him. In any case, the desert was impassable. He spent the entire afternoon of the second day looking out over the desert and listening to his heart. The boy knew the desert sensed his fear. They both spoke the same language. On the third day, the chief met with his officers. He called the alchemist to the meeting and said, Let's go and see the boy who turns himself into the wind. Let's! the alchemist answered. The boy took them to the cliff where he had been on the previous day. He told them all to be seated. It's going to take a while, the boy said. We're in no hurry, the chief answered. We are men of the desert. The boy looked out at the horizon. There were mountains in the distance, and there were dunes, rocks, and plants that insisted on living where survival seemed impossible. There was the desert that he had wandered for so many months. Despite all that time, he knew only a small part of it. Within that small part, he had found an Englishman, caravans, tribal wars, and an oasis with 50,000 palm trees and 300 wells. 
What do you want here today? the desert asked him. Didn't you spend enough time looking at me yesterday? Somewhere you are holding the person I love, the boy said. So when I look out over your sounds, I'm also looking at her. I want to return to her, and I need your help so that I can turn myself into the wind. What is love? the desert asked. Love is the falcon's flight over your sands, because for him you are a green field from which he always returns with game. He knows your rocks, your dunes and your mountains, and you are generous to him. The falcon's beak carries bits of me myself, the desert said. For years I care for his game, feeding it with the little water that I have, and then I show him where the game is and one day, as I enjoy the fact that his game thrives on my surface, the falcon dives out of the sky and takes away what I've created. But that's why you created the game in the first place, the boy answered, to nourish the falcon. And the falcon then nourishes man. And eventually, man will nourish your sands, where the game will once again flourish. That's how the world goes. So is that what love is? Yes, that's what love is. It's what makes the game become the falcon, the falcon become the man and man in his turn the desert. It's what turns lead into gold and makes the gold return to the earth. I don't understand what you're talking about, the desert said. But you can at least understand that somewhere in your sands there is a woman waiting for me, and that's why I have to turn myself into the wind. The desert didn't answer him for a few moments. Then it told him, I'll give you my sands to help the wind to blow, but alone I can't do anything. You have to ask help from the wind. A breeze began to blow. The tribesmen watched the boy from a distance, talking among themselves in a language that the boy couldn't understand. The alchemist smiled. The wind approached the boy and touched his face. It knew of the boy's talk with the desert because the winds know everything. They blow across the world without a birthplace and with no place to die. Help me! the boy said. One day you carried the voice of my loved one to me. Who taught you to speak the language of the desert and the wind? My heart, the boy answered. The wind has many names. In that part of the world, it was called the Sirocco, because it brought moisture from the oceans to the east. In the distant land the boy came from, they called it the Levanta, because they believed that it brought with it the sands of the desert and the screams of the Moorish wars. Perhaps, in the places beyond the pastures where his sheep lived, men thought that the wind came from Andalusia. But actually, the wind came from no place at all, nor did it go to any place. That's why it was stronger than the desert. Someone might one day plant trees in the desert and even raise sheep there, but never would they harness the wind. You can't be the wind, the wind said. We're two very different things. That's not true, the boy said. I learned the alchemist's secrets in my travels. I have inside me the winds, the deserts, the oceans, the stars, and everything created in the universe. We were all made by the same hand, and we all have the same soul. I want to be like you, able to reach every corner of the world, cross the seas, blow away the sands that cover my treasure, and carry the voice of the woman I love. I heard what you were talking about the other day with the alchemist, the wind said. He said that everything has its own personal legend, but people can't turn themselves into the wind. Just teach me to be the wind for a few moments, the boy said, so you and I can talk about the limitless possibilities of people and the winds. 
The wind's curiosity was aroused, something that had never happened before. It wanted to talk about those things, but it didn't know how to turn a man into the wind. And look how many things the wind already knew how to do. It created deserts, sank ships, felled entire forests, and blew through cities filled with music and strange noises. It felt that it had no limits, yet here was a boy saying that there were other things the wind should be able to do. This is what we call love, the boy said, seeing that the wind was close to granting what he requested. When you're loved, you can do anything in creation. When you are loved, there's no need at all to understand what's happening because everything happens within you, and even men can turn themselves into the wind, as long as the wind helps, of course. The wind was a proud being, and it was becoming irritated with what the boy was saying. It commenced to blow harder, raising the desert sands. But finally, it had to recognise that, even making its way around the world, it didn't know how to turn a man into the wind and it knew nothing about love. In my travels round the world, I've often seen people speaking of love and looking towards the heavens, the wind said, furious at having to acknowledge its own limitations. Maybe it's better to ask heaven. Well then, help me to do that, the boy said. Fill this place with a sandstorm so strong that it blots out the sun. Then I can look to heaven without blinding myself. So the wind blew with all its strength, and the sky was filled with sand. The sun was turned into a golden disc. At the camp, it was difficult to see anything. The men of the desert were already familiar with that wind. They called it the Simum, and it was worse than a storm at sea. Their horses cried out, and all their weapons were filled with sand. On the heights, one of the commanders turned to the chief and said, Maybe we'd better end this. They could barely see the boy. Their faces were covered with the blue cloths, and their eyes showed fear. Let's stop this, another commander said. I want to see the greatness of Allah, the chief said with respect. I want to see how a man turns himself into the wind. But he made a mental note of the names of the two men who had expressed their fear. As soon as the wind stopped, he was going to remove them from their commands, because true men of the desert are not afraid. The wind told me that you know about love, the boy said to the sun. If you know about love, you must also know about the soul of the world, because it's made of love. From where I am, the sun said, I can see the soul of the world. It communicates with my soul, and together we cause the plants to grow and the sheep to seek out shade. From where I am, and I'm a long way from the earth, I learned how to love. I know that if I came even a little bit closer to the earth, everything there would die, and the soul of the world would no longer exist. So we contemplate each other, and we want each other, and I give it life and warmth, and it gives me my reason for living. So you know about love, the boy said. And I know the soul of the world, because we've talked at great lengths to each other during this endless trip through the universe. It tells me that its greatest problem is that, up until now, only the minerals and vegetables understand that all things are one. That there's no need for iron to be the same as copper, or copper the same as gold. 
Each performs its own exact function as unique being, and everything would be a symphony of peace if the hand that wrote all this had stopped on the fifth day of creation. But there was a sixth day, the sun went on. You are wise because you observe everything from a distance, the boy said. But you don't know about love. If there hadn't been a sixth day, man would not exist. Copper would always be just copper and lead just lead. It's true that everything has its personal legend, but one day that personal legend will be realised, so each thing has to transform itself into something better and to acquire a new personal legend until someday the soul of the world becomes one thing only. The sun thought about that and decided to shine more brightly. The wind, which was enjoying the conversation, started to blow with greater force so that the sun would not blind the boy. This is why alchemy exists, the boy said, so that everyone will search for his treasure, find it, and then want to be better than he was in his former life. Lead will play its role until the world has no further need for lead, and then lead will have to turn itself into gold. That's what alchemists do. They show that when we strive to become better than we are, Everything around us becomes better, too. Well, why did you say that I don't know about love? The son asked the boy. Because it's not love to be static like the desert, nor is it love to roam the world like the wind. And it's not love to see everything from a distance like you do. Love is the force that transforms and improves the soul of the world. When I first reached through to it, I thought the soul of the world was perfect. But later I could see that it was like other aspects of creation and had its own passions and wars. It is we who nourish the soul of the world, and the world we live in will be either better or worse depending on whether we become better or worse. And that's where the power of love comes in, because when we love, we always strive to become better than we are. So what do you want of me? the son asked. I want you to help me turn myself into the wind, the boy answered. Nature knows me as the wisest being in creation, the son said. But I don't know how to turn you into the wind. Then whom should I ask? The son thought for a minute. The wind was listening closely and wanted to tell every corner of the world that the sun's wisdom had its limitations that it was unable to deal with this boy who spoke the language of the world. Well, speak to the hand that wrote all, said the sun. The wind screamed with delight and blew harder than ever. The tents were being blown from their ties to the earth and the animals were being freed from their tethers. On the cliff, the men clutched at each other as they sought to keep from being blown away. The boy turned to the hand that wrote all. As he did so, he sensed that the universe had fallen silent, and he decided not to speak. A current of love rushed from his heart, and the boy began to pray. It was a prayer that he'd never said before, because it was a prayer without words or pleas. His prayer didn't give thanks for his sheep having found new pastures. It didn't ask that the boy be able to sell more crystal and it didn't beseech that the woman he had met continue to await his return. In the silence, the boy understood 
that the desert, the wind, and the sun were also trying to understand the signs written by the hand, and were seeking to follow their paths, and to understand what had been written on a single emerald. He saw that omens were scattered throughout the earth and in space, and that there was no reason or significance attached to their appearance. He could see that not the deserts, nor the winds, nor the sun, nor people knew why they had been created, but that the hand had a reason for all of this, and that only the hand could perform miracles, or transform the sea into a desert, or a man into the wind, because only the hand understood that it was a larger design that had moved the universe to the point at which six days of creation had evolved into a masterwork. The boy reached through to the soul of the world and saw that it was a part of the soul of God, and he saw that the soul of God was his own soul, and that he, a boy, could perform miracles. The simum blew that day as it had never blown before. For generations thereafter, the Arabs recounted the legend of a boy who had turned himself into the wind, almost destroying a military camp in defiance of the most powerful chief in the desert. When the simum ceased to blow, everyone looked to the place where the boy had been, but he was no longer there. He was standing next to a sand-covered sentinel on the far side of the camp. The men were terrified at his sorcery, but there were two people who were smiling, the alchemist, because he had found his perfect disciple, and the chief, because that disciple had understood the glory of God. The following day, the general bade the boy and the alchemist farewell and provided them with an escort party to accompany them as far as they chose. They rode for the entire day. Toward the end of the afternoon, they came upon a Coptic monastery. The alchemist dismounted and told the escorts they could return to the camp. From here on, you will be alone, the alchemist said. You are only three hours from the pyramids. Thank you, said the boy. You taught me the language of the world. I only invoked what you already knew. The alchemist knocked on the gate of the monastery. A monk dressed in black came to the gates. They spoke for a few minutes in the Coptic tongue, and the alchemist bade the boy enter. I asked him to let me use the kitchen for a while, the alchemist smiled. They went to the kitchen at the back of the monastery. The alchemist lighted the fire and the monk brought in some lead, which the alchemist placed in an iron pan. When the lead had become liquid, the alchemist took from his pouch the strange yellow egg. He scraped from it a sliver as thin as a hair, wrapped it in wax, and added it to the pan in which the lead had melted. The mixture took on a reddish colour, almost the colour of blood. The alchemist removed the pan from the fire and set it aside to cool. As he did so, he talked with the monk about the tribal wars. I think they're going to last for a long time, he said to the monk. The monk was irritated. The caravans had been stopped at Giza for some time, waiting for the wars to end. But God's will be done, 
the monk said. Exactly, answered the alchemist. When the pan had cooled, the monk and the boy looked at it, dazzled. The lead had dried into the shape of the pan, but it was no longer lead. It was gold. Will I learn to do that some day? the boy asked. This was my personal legend, not yours, the alchemist answered. But I wanted to show you that it was possible. They returned to the gates of the monastery. There, the alchemist separated the disc into four parts. This is for you, he said, holding one of the parts out to the monk. It's for your generosity to the pilgrims. But this payment goes well beyond my generosity, the monk responded. Don't say that again. Life might be listening and give you less the next time. The alchemist turned to the boy. This is for you, to make up for what you gave to the general. The boy was about to say that it was much more than he had given to the general, but he kept quiet because he had heard what the alchemist said to the monk. And this is for me said the alchemist, keeping one of the parts, because I have to return to the desert where there are tribal wars. He took the fourth part and handed it to the monk. This is for the boy, if he ever needs it. But I'm going in search of my treasure, the boy said. I'm very close to it now. And I'm certain you'll find it, the alchemist said. Then why this? Because you have already lost your savings twice, once to the thief and once to the general. I'm an old, superstitious Arab, and I believe in our proverbs. There's one that says, Everything that happens once can never happen again, but everything that happens twice will surely happen a third time. They mounted their horses. I want to tell you a story about dreams, said the alchemist. The boy brought his horse closer. In ancient Rome, at the time of Emperor Tiberius, there lived a good man who had two sons. One was in the military and had been sent to the most distant regions of the empire. The other son was a poet and delighted all of Rome with his beautiful verses. One night the father had a dream. An angel appeared to him and told him that the words of one of his sons would be learned and repeated throughout the world for all generations to come. The father woke from his dream grateful and crying because life was generous and had revealed to him something any father would be proud to know. Shortly thereafter, the father died as he tried to save a child who was about to be crushed by the wheels of a chariot. Since he had lived his entire life in a manner that was correct and fair, he went directly to heaven, where he met the angel that had appeared in his dream. You were always a good man, the angel said to him. You lived your life in a loving way and died with dignity. I can now grant you any wish you desire. Life was good to me, the man said. When you appeared in my dream... I felt that all my efforts had been rewarded because my son's poems will be read by men for generations to come. I don't want anything for myself, but any father would be proud of the fame achieved by one whom he had cared for as a child and educated as he grew up. Sometime in the distant future, I would like to see my son's words. The angel 
touched the man's shoulder, and they were both projected far into the future. They were in an immense setting, surrounded by thousands of people speaking in a strange language. The man wept with happiness. I knew that my son's poems were immortal, he said to the angel through his tears. Can you please tell me which of my son's poems these people are repeating? The angel came closer to the man, and with tenderness led him to a bench nearby where they sat down. The verses of your son, who was the poet, were very popular in Rome, the angel said. Everybody loved them and enjoyed them. But when the reign of Tiberius ended, his poems were forgotten. The words you're hearing now are those of your son in the military. The man looked at the angel in surprise. Your son went to serve at a distant place and became a centurion. He was just and good. One afternoon, one of his servants fell ill, and it appeared that he would die. Your son had heard of a rabbi who was able to cure illnesses, and he rode out for days and days in search of this man. Along the way, he learned that the man he was seeking was the Son of God. He met others who had been cured by him, and they instructed your son in the man's teachings. And so, despite the fact he was a Roman centurion, he converted to their faith. Shortly thereafter, he reached the place where the man he was looking for was visiting. He told the man that one of his servants was gravely ill, and the rabbi made ready to go to his house with him. But the centurion was a man of faith, and looking into the eyes of the rabbi, he knew that he was surely in the presence of the Son of God. And this is what your son said, the angel told the man. These are the words he said to the rabbi at that point, and they have never been forgotten. My lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word, and my servant will be healed. The alchemist said, No matter what he does, every person on earth plays a central role in the history of the world and normally he doesn't know it. The boy smiled. He had never imagined that questions about life would be of such importance to a shepherd. Goodbye, the alchemist said. Goodbye, said the boy. The boy rode along through the desert for several hours, listening avidly to what his heart had to say. It was his heart that would tell him where his treasure was hidden. Where your treasure is, there also will be your heart, the alchemist had told him. But his heart was speaking of other things. With pride, it told the story of a shepherd who had left his flock to follow a dream he had on two different occasions. It told of personal legend and of the many men who had wandered in search of distant lands or beautiful women, confronting the people of their times with their preconceived notions. It spoke of journeys, discoveries, books, and change. As he was about to climb yet another dune, his heart whispered, Be aware of the place where you are brought to tears. That's where I am, 
and that's where your treasure is. The boy climbed the dune slowly. A full moon rose again in the starry sky. It had been a month since he had set forth from the oasis. The moonlight cast shadows through the dunes, creating the appearance of a rolling sea. It reminded the boy of the day that the horse had reared in the desert, and he had come to know the alchemist. And the moon fell on the desert silence, and on a man's journey in search of treasure. When he reached the top of the dune, his heart leapt. There, illuminated by the light of the moon and the brightness of the desert, stood the solemn and majestic Pyramids of Egypt. The boy fell to his knees and wept. He thanked God for making him believe in his personal legend and for leading him to meet a king, a merchant, an Englishman and an alchemist. And above all, for his having met a woman of the desert who had told him that love would never keep a man from his personal legend. If he wanted to, he could now return to the oasis, go back to Fatima, and live his life as a simple shepherd. After all, the alchemist continued to live in the desert, even though he understood the language of the world and knew how to transform lead into gold. He didn't need to demonstrate his science and art to anyone. The boy told himself that, on the way toward realizing his own personal legend, he had learned all he needed to know and had experienced everything he might have dreamed of. But here he was, at the point of finding his treasure, and he reminded himself that no project is completed until its objective has been achieved. The boy looked at the sands around him and saw that where his tears had fallen, a scarab beetle was scuttling through the sand. During his time in the desert he had learned that in Egypt the scarab beetles are a symbol of God. Another omen. The boy began to dig into the dune. As he did so, he thought of what the crystal merchant had once said, that anyone could build a pyramid in his backyard. The boy could see now that he couldn't do so if he placed stone upon stone for the rest of his life. Throughout the night, the boy dug at the place he had chosen, but found nothing. He felt weighted down by the centuries of time since the pyramids had been built, but he didn't stop. He struggled to continue digging as he fought the wind, which often blew the sand back into the excavation. His hands were abraded and exhausted, but he listened to his heart. It had told him to dig where his tears fell. As he was attempting to pull out the rocks he encountered, he heard footsteps. Several figures approached him. Their backs were to the moonlight, and the boy could see neither their eyes nor their faces. "'What are you doing here?' one of the figures demanded. Because he was terrified, the boy didn't answer. He had found where his treasure was and was frightened of what might happen. "'We're refugees from the tribal wars and we need money,' the other figure said. "'What are you hiding there?' "'I'm not hiding anything,' the boy answered. But one of them seized the boy and yanked him back out of the hole. Another, who was searching the boy's bags, found the piece of gold. "'There's gold here,' he said. The moon shone on the face of the Arab who had seized him, and in the man's eyes the boy saw death. "'He's probably got more gold hidden in the ground!' They made the boy continue digging, but he found nothing. As the sun rose, the men began to beat the boy. He was bruised and bleeding, his clothing was torn to shreds and he felt that death was near. What good is money to you if you're going to die? 
It's not often that money can save someone's life, the alchemist had said. Finally, the boy screamed at the men, I'm digging for treasure! And although his mouth was bleeding and swollen, he told his attackers that he had twice dreamed of a treasure hidden near the pyramids of Egypt. The man who appeared to be the leader of the group spoke to one of the others. Leave him. He doesn't have anything else. He must have stolen this gold. The boy fell to the sand, nearly unconscious. The leader shook him and said, We're leaving. But before they left, he came back to the boy and said, You're not going to die, you'll live. And you'll learn that a man shouldn't be so stupid. Two years ago, right here on this spot, I had a recurrent dream too. I dreamed that I should travel to the fields of Spain and look for a ruined church where shepherds and their sheep slept. In my dream there was a sycamore growing out of the ruins of the sacristy, and I was told that if I dug at the roots of the sycamore, I would find a hidden treasure. I'm not so stupid as to cross an entire desert just because of a recurrent dream. And they disappeared. The boy stood up shakily and looked once more at the pyramids. They seemed to laugh at him, and he laughed back, his heart bursting with joy, because now he knew where his treasure was. The boy reached the small abandoned church just as night was falling. The sycamore was still there in the sacristy, and the stars could still be seen through the half-destroyed roof. He remembered the time he had been there with his sheep. It had been a peaceful night, except for the dream. Now he was here not with his flock, but with a shovel. He sat looking at the sky for a long time. Then he took from his knapsack a bottle of wine and drank some. He remembered the night in the desert when he had sat with the alchemist as they looked at the stars and drank wine together. He thought of the many roads he had travelled and of the strange way God had chosen to show him his treasure. If he hadn't believed in the significance of recurrent dreams, he would not have met the gypsy woman, the king, the thief, or, well, it's a long list. But the path was written in the omens, and there was no way I could go wrong, he said to himself. He fell asleep and when he awoke the sun was already high. He began to dig at the base of the sycamore. You old sorcerer, the boy shouted up to the sky. You knew the whole story. You even left a bit of gold at the monastery so I could get back to this church. The monk laughed when he saw me come back in tatters. Couldn't you have saved me from that? No, he heard the voice on the wind say. If I had told you, you wouldn't have seen the pyramids. They're beautiful, aren't they? The boy smiled and continued digging. Half an hour later, his shovel hit something solid. An hour later, he had before him a chest of Spanish gold coins. There were also precious stones, gold masks adorned with red and white feathers, and stone statues embedded with jewels the spoils of a conquest that the country had long ago forgotten and that some conquistador had failed to tell his children about. The boy took out Urim and Thummim from his bag. 
He had used the stones only once, one morning when he was at a marketplace. His life and his path had always provided him with enough omens. He placed Urim and Thummim in the chest. They were also a part of his new treasure, because they were a reminder of the old king, whom he would never see again. It's true, life really is generous to those who pursue their personal legend, the boy thought. Then he remembered that he had to get to Tarifa, so he could give one-tenth of his treasure to the gypsy woman, as he had promised. Those gypsies are really smart, he thought. Maybe it was because they moved around so much. The wind began to blow again. It was the Levanter, the wind that came from Africa. It didn't bring with it the smell of the desert, nor the threat of Moorish invasion. Instead, it brought the scent of a perfume he knew well, and the touch of a kiss, a kiss that came from far away, slowly, slowly, until it rested on his lips. The boy smiled. It was the first time she had done that. I'm coming, Fatima, he said.